for your weekly dose of Wayne's Comics. It's time for episode 236 of the Wayne's Comics Podcast. I'm so glad you're listening because it's another doubleheader weekend. First up is my chat with Luke Cooper, creator of a great insane comic called Hollow Girl. It's something a little different, and you know I love variety in my reading. So we talk about horror and what goes on with a girl who finds herself being used by spirits who are trying to get revenge through her, or at least that's what she thinks is going on. Luke and I talk about how the book came to be, about the fact that a new issue has just come out, and what we might see from him in the future. Then everything wraps up with Corey Levine, the creator of Bowery Boys, a New York story which is also subtitled Our Fathers. He talks about his time at Marvel as well as his other events and other things he's got going on, including this great hardcover book from Dark Horse. It's a historic piece and it's one of my favorites. I think you'll enjoy it if you get a chance to read it. It's set in the 1850s in New York City and it's chock full of surprises and great writing. So I think you're going to enjoy what he has to say. There's a lot to get to, as always. So let's get on with the show. Great to be talking with Luke Cooper, creator of Hollow Girl, an insane comic that I've really come to enjoy. How are you doing today, Luke? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Good, it's good to talk with you. Since I've dealt with some other insane comics creators recently, it's great to talk with you as well. Now, why don't you, for the people who may not be familiar with Hollow Girl, describe what the book is about. Okay, well, it's crazy stuff. Basically, it's a teenage girl who dresses in black like a goth and wears a emotionless blank white mask and she believes that the spirits of the dead are working through her compelling her to get revenge on their behalf that's basically it but it's a bit more to it than that it's very psychological and there's a sort of ambiguity as to whether she's just crazy or whether she's really seeing ghosts Mm -hmm. how many issues of hollow girl have come out so far we've just released the third one so that'll be good. That's, that's out now. The way that we get these is through Insane Comics, their store uh, there. And it's easy to find. You just go to the insanecomics.com and go to their store, and you'll find a whole bunch of stuff, digital or print, you can order them from. So why did you choose Insane Comics, Luke? Well, I kind of wanted to go through an American company mm-hmm. because, well, to be honest, I've been commissioned to write Hollow Girl as a graphic novel for another company. Mm. And they folded, Mm. but they were an American company. So I thought, well, I really want this to be for an American audience. Mm. I was really trying to channel it to that particular kind of reader. Mm. And, well, how could I resist? Mm. It's an insane concept, Mm. insane comics. It just felt like it was meant to be. So I sent them a submission, Mm. and I was lucky enough to get a good positive response. Great. How far were you along before you sent stuff to Insane Comics? Oh, I finished the first Hollow Girl book about three years ago. After the first company folded, before they'd even printed a single issue, I think uh, the editor decided that actually it was too much money. And so he just basically fired everyone who had submitted anything. So it was like Hollow Girl was in limbo, so I tried a few British comic companies. It was really at the point where I was thinking, okay, this isn't going to get published. Mm. And then one of the other Insane Comics guys actually shared 
a post, I think, that they were doing submissions. So it was purely by chance, purely social media. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, three years ago. So it was a long time ago I did that book. So let's see, you did issue one three years ago. When did you do issue two? That was more recent. That's why you can see the art style was slightly different. Mm-hmm. I developed an inking style that was a lot faster. So now I can get an issue done within a couple of months. Actually, Insane Comics is having trouble keeping up with me. Uh-huh. Now, it's interesting because you do both the art and the uh, the writing on this. Do you do the lettering as well? Yeah, I do everything. Wow, so it's your baby all the way through. Wow, that's great. Is that the way you prefer to do it? I've done a few other projects with um, other writers, and I learn a lot from working with other people. But, yeah, I'm... A- I'd like to say it's because I'm a control freak and I, I know where everything's going to go. But also it's because I can self-edit. So if I notice something isn't working right, I can change it right up to the last second. So if the script isn't quite right, then I know that when it comes to the art phase, I can swap a few panels around and move things. Mm-hmm. And then when I do the lettering, maybe there's a bit of writing I'm not happy with so I can make last minute changes so it's basically just give me control right up to the last possible second mm-hmm. well it's always a great thing creative people love to be able to tinker until the last minute until it goes out so make it the best you can make it so that's a great thing now when you and I first started talking you mentioned something that I thought was really interesting and people should know so they can get to know a little bit about what Hollow Girl would be like. You talked about the fact that there were three books that you had read that gave you a pretty strong reaction. Do you want to talk a little bit about those three? Because that's the kind of thing you're hoping that people will get from your book, I imagine. I'm struggling to remember. Um, okay, you, the, mean... you talked about Sandman. Your reaction to that was overwhelming. And then you talked about Preacher. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it was to do with when I first started reading adult comics, yeah. When I was young, I read a lot of the kind of things you'd usually find in a comic shop, you know, Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, Captain America, whatever I could get my hands on as a youngling. Mm -hmm. And one day I saw one called Sandman, and I wrongly assumed it was just another superhero book. (laughs) Saw that it had a mature reader's tag on the front, Mm -hmm. but the lady in the shop was a little, little tiny corner shop, so she was not sure whether to sell it to me, but she knew me, so in the end she relented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the issue at the end of Preludes and Nocturnes when, I think what his name is, Dr. D, mm-hmm. he uses a jewel to hypnotise the whole of this uh, truck stop, mm-hmm. and all of the people just start killing each other in inventive and disgusting ways, and it, mm-hmm. it blew my mind, because... I, I always lo- enjoyed horror, but I'd never seen it done in a comic before. Not like that. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I guess the second one, the big thing with Preacher, which I still love and I still maintain is one of the greatest comics ever written. And yeah, it, it was amazing to see what you could get away with in comics and how it can be used in a different way, not just colourful superheroes, but actually to tell a darker, more personal, more psychological stories. Mm-hmm. Have you had a chance to see the AMC Preacher show yet? Yeah, I just watched uh, episode four today, coincidentally. What do uh, you think? I like seeing the characters I love on the screen, but it's obviously very, very different to the comic, and I was a little disappointed, but mm. I don't know. I don't mind too much. It's, it's good to see my favorite characters doing something, even if it's something different. Mm-hmm. Now, there's one other book you mentioned, too, the Punisher miniseries from 1985. Yeah, that's a similar sort of thing. In the UK, we had the Marvel UK version, which is basically the same as your ones, except slightly bigger format. And I think they were black and white as well and packaged with uh, Robocop comics in the back. (laughs) And yeah, so I I read the first Steve Grant, Mike Zek miniseries and... He might have had the silly costume, but it was all about guns and gangsters and action. And yeah, that was fantastic. I still love that comic, and I still love The Punisher today. It's still my favorite comic series. Very cool, very cool. Well, well, I've got to ask again, since these days comics are bleeding over into television, did you get a chance to watch the second season of Daredevil from Netflix? Oh, yeah, fantastic. Mm. I think it's the best on-screen version of The Punisher they've ever done. Mm. Just amazing. I wasn't so sure about the other storyline with, uh, was it? I think it was The Hand. Yeah. That wasn't so good, and I, I thought it ended quite badly. I thought the last episode wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, The Punisher now is getting his own show on Netflix, supposedly. Yeah, is that going to work, though? Well, we'll see. It's tough when you have a character like The Punisher, because he basically is uh, a force of nature on many levels. And to have him go around and basically take care of business when somebody's not trying to stop him, of course you could always have the police come in and stop him. Yeah, I mean, his problem is he's very one-dimensional, which actually um, was a problem I had with Hollow Girl. And Hollow Girl comes from a five-page short I did for an anthology. Mm. And that publisher I was telling you about earlier, uh, I showed it to him. He thought I was giving him a preview of a book and said, yeah, brilliant, write a graphic novel. (laughs) Okay, that's not what I intended, because basically it was just she kills a load of people and then at the end, a ghost comes out and thanks her and that was the whole story mm-hmm. it was just five six pages mm-hmm. and uh, so yeah i come up against a very similar problem to uh, characters like the punisher and judge dread where really they're one note so how do you make them interesting so with me it was i went the psychological route i went inside and went into her past so i don't know how you can do it of the punisher really i suppose the Garth Ennis Max series and the Jason Aaron Max series did quite a good psychological profile. Maybe follow that. Well, you know, yeah. these days these people are basically copying some of the comics, so maybe the ones you mentioned are ones they should take a look at to make that series happen. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Get into the uh, dark recesses of Frank Castle's mind. Mm-hmm. That'd be good. Now, when I talked with you two, one of the things I really enjoyed that you said was you referred to Hollow Girl as grim and satisfying. I think so, yeah. I don't know. I, mean, I was trying to think of ways to describe it to people. It's definitely the nastiest thing I've ever written. Mm-hmm. Usually I've got like a sense of humor to the stuff I write. Mm-hmm. But this, there's, there's no sense of humor at all. It is just relentlessly dark. But there's also that kind of nasty wish fulfillment thing that you get from things like The Punisher and, again, Judge Dredd and that kind of stuff where you know they're not really the good guys. Mm-hmm. You know that you should not be applauding their behavior, but there is something kind of satisfying at a very visceral level when you see a bad guy get what they deserve. And it helps that Hollow Girl is half the size of the people she fights, so there is that nice David and Goliath sort of feel to her fights. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of funny, because when we first talked a little bit, you were concerned that I might not like the book and that I might, as you said, it kick your ass for a half hour on the podcast, which I got a kick about. I've never had somebody say that to me before. <laughs> so it worries me because especially as it goes on, it just gets nastier and nastier. And I think the more you find out about her past, you understand more about her, but it's also a horrible exploitation factor to it, the way she's been used and manipulated. Mm-hmm. So I do wonder if some people would read it and then just think, well, oh, how horrible, what a horrible person to write such nasty stuff. That poor <laughs> well, yeah, that's kind of the point. <laughs> well, I have to say, I don't know if you know who Saitatan is, British writer who's written several books that I really like. He watched a show about the slaughter of pigs, and he came out of that with an idea for a comic book. Uh, it was called Slaughterman's Creed, and it was all about this guy who slaughtered pigs, and he was actually an assassin as well. And it was just kind of funny, and I had to say to him, if I watch something like that, I'm not sure I'd come up with the same reaction that you did. So I have to ask, how did you come up with the concept for Hollow Girl? Oh, it's very shallow. Um, (laughs) It's just the idea of girls and guns, really. But um, then shame kicked in, because everything I write, it's always a girl with guns fighting bad guys or fighting monsters or something like that. But then I always go into a shame spiral afterwards where I think, oh, why are you doing this? stupidly misogynistic stuff so then hollow girl went completely the other way as soon as i put a mask on her face she suddenly became completely dehumanized you've read the first two issues read all three actually i got number three and i've read them all so yeah i liked them thank you very much i appreciate the support that's great but you can see that she is probably one of the least sexualized characters out there and there's no skin tight suits there's no sexy costumes she's kind of dirty looking dressed in black mm-hmm. that was almost like me telling myself off that was me punishing myself saying no you've tried to create this sexy girly character with guns and i'm not going to let you do it you're going to have to do it the other way so 
she's almost a reaction to the comics I used to read when I was very young, things like Gen 13 and The Tenth and all those more exploitative sort of comics where all the characters were teenage girls in skin-tight lycra, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And Girl is very definitely the opposite. I mean, in the first book, there is one scene of nudity and it's of a woman who's got her guts spilling out and blood everywhere. So it's almost like um, I just decided I'm going to actively punish anyone who wants to read this book to get kind of sexual gratification. Okay. Every reference in the comic is very dark and negative. There's uh, incest and child molesting and just all horrible, horrible stuff. So any sexual reference in it at all should make you feel very uncomfortable. Because mm -hmm. as we start issue three, we see her and she's looking at what appears to be a bunch of, I don't know what you want to call them, demons or something. They've got like animal legs, but they have like, almost have uh, antlers or horns or something coming out of their heads and stuff. That's a continuation from issue two. But this is, interestingly enough, issue three is the second of two parts. And this has to do with the father a lot of the uh well, it's, it was originally going to be called Father Figures because it was looking at all of the different father figures she's had in her life. And so there's a detective she's manipulating by posing as his dead daughter, basically, claiming to be able to channel the spirit of his dead daughter. So that's one father. And then you've got the priest, who is another father, who literally he's Father Skelton. And then her real dad, who appears in spirit form, and we find out a bit about her horrible past with him. So, yeah, father's very much the point of it all, yeah. And uh, the reason I did the demon bit was because I like the ambiguity of Hollow Girl. I like that readers don't know whether she's crazy or whether she's really seeing ghosts. Mm -hmm. And to my mind, it's quite obvious that the demons are not real, mm -hmm. that... Uh, the opening splash page is on one side of her, you can see there's a SWAT team. Mm -hmm. And then as we look through her, they become demons. Mm -hmm. So I put her in the middle of the page to sort of separate what's real and what she can see. Mm -hmm. And that's intended to create doubt so that you're like, well, but if the demons are not real, does that mean everything she's seeing is not real? So we're not sure at what point reality becomes fantasy. Mm -hmm. well, I get a kick because her name is Catherine, the girl's name is, but when the spirits come in and send her on a mission, doesn't she go by the name of Cat? Cat was the name her dad gave her. Oh, so, okay, I've got it backwards. Um, yeah, there's a moment where the psychiatrist refuses to call her Cat because he said, no, that's what your dad called you, so I'm going to call you Catherine. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, which is kind of fun. I, it's interesting. You know, the ghosts come into her and send her on these missions to basically vengeance or avenge themselves. And how do the ghosts know that she's available to be used in that way? I think they can sense it. I think it's like they're drawn to her, that they sense that she is a willing vessel. I was never clear on how the priest was involved, really. I mean, there's a few scenes of him in the church, and it's almost like it's almost like he's the go-between who's introducing her to the spirits, but it's never really gone into very deeply. And that's intentional, because I don't really want people to know everything. I want it to be, well... Maybe none of it's real. Maybe there, maybe there are no ghosts. So maybe it's all pure coincidence. You're meant to be able to read it two ways. So you've got, if the ghosts are real, then why does she have a police officer who sets her up with the locations where the bad guys are going to be? So mm -hmm. she's got a police officer feeding her information. Mm -hmm. And she's priest sending her on the missions. So really, from that point of view, she doesn't need the ghosts at all. She just needs someone to give her a name of who to go after. So it's supposed to be read one of two ways. Uh, it's supposed to work in both ways. So, yeah, maybe ghosts, maybe not. And um, I like the idea that the writer might have his own impression of how a story goes, but then the reader might have a completely different idea. Mm -hmm. And the writer can't say the reader's wrong because that's just what they got from it. Mm -hmm. One of the choices you made I thought that was really interesting was to do these in black and white. And I think that black and white is a good way to do horror to be honest with you so it is was it easier to do black and white was it a creative choice why did you choose black and white i prefer black and white i've always worked that way i have done stuff in color as well mm -hmm. but 
for Hollow Girl, I don't think any other way would work. When I first did it and I was talking to a publisher, one of the first things they said was, do you mind if I get a colorist involved? And I said, well, yes, I do mind. It's been <laughs> drawn that way for a reason. It's supposed to be black and white. And some of the panels are pretty much just jet black with just a little bit of white peering out. And that's always to sort of enhance the idea of the white mask that kind of stuff. But I always like the idea of seeing something emerging from darkness. And I don't think color would really work for Hollow Girl. It feels like it's supposed to be noir. I mean, it keeps getting compared to film noir style, and I like that. I think that works for it. I have to say, too, because a lot of comics would have the main character be a guy instead of being a woman. But as you said, you like to write stories with women in the lead. Is there something specific about women that draws you to it? Is it just a natural thing? Is it the female character that draws you? What is it that makes you want to do these characters as women? I find male protagonists boring because they're always, they're always super tough and... You know, big muscle-bound guys with guns. Well, we've seen that. That's uh, that's not really interesting to me. I mean, I, I like female protagonists because there is an implied vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And also, they have to rely on other things as well. Intelligence, agility, rather than physical strength. Whereas with guys, I grew up watching Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. I, I used to love that guy. Mm-hmm. But you never felt like he was in any danger. He was just this enormous guy holding machine guns mowing down a whole army of bad guys mm-hmm. with hollow girl i wanted you to really feel like she's in danger in the first book she gets shot mm-hmm. like straight away and, and that's because I, I don't want her to be an indestructible superhero i don't want her to be a tough guy mm-hmm. so i think female characters are better for that we get more of a sense of the danger mm-hmm. of female protagonists well, she's also pretty crafty, too. In the third book, you know, she, you talked about the fact that she wears a white mask that covers up, doesn't allow emotion to be shown. Well, that's not available to her at one point in the third book, and she uses creativity to create another mask, which I thought was good. And I don't know if I necessarily want to spoil it, but let's just say that she finds another way to assume that role and to, to make that kind of thing happen. And I always thought that a guy wouldn't necessarily do that. They would say, well, no mask, let's just get on to business. But she, of course, wants to follow the pattern, and so she makes another kind of a mask in order to make these things happen, which I thought was pretty creative on her part. Yeah, but I'm not sure if that's because she's smart or there's a certain element is self-loathing, right? Mm-hmm. And another part of it is about identity. So if she's doing this on behalf of other people, if they're working through her, then it shouldn't be her doing it. It should be them. So the mask always represents the person she's doing it for. So the mask is always scarred to somehow either emulate the injuries of the victim she's avenging or to somehow reference the person she's going after. So in the first book, she goes after a guy called chuckles and his name is chuckles because he's been given what we call a chelsea smile at some point where someone's cut his cheek give him a permanent grin and so she scars her mask in the same way to make it very clear you're the guy i'm going after Mm -hmm. so the mask is always um tailored in that way the pillowcase sequence in the third book is just yeah as you say well she hasn't really got anything else to use so she uses that Mm -hmm. well she's a pretty smart character you have to give her credit and all this and you know of course having gone through all that she's gone through to be able to stand up to these kinds of things now you know you've talked about the notion whether she's insane or whether there's these spirits are making her do that it's a tough question you know because as i read this book i wasn't exactly sure when i got to the end either as to what was going on and at some point she ends up talking to the ghost and they sort of have a in her perception, or whether it's real or not, we don't know. But they have a perception of kind of protecting her. And, you know, as somebody who's had a lot of abuse or suffered a lot in life, to, to have some sort of feeling that there's some sort of protection going on, even maybe something from a supernatural realm, it's probably pretty comforting to her. So you never know. That could just be her coming up with that, or it could be that there are ghosts out there actually looking out for her. Yeah, um, I like that whole sequence. That was sort of added Really, because the story petered out about halfway through the second book, where pretty much there is a big death scene that really, that for me, felt like the ending. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And thought, well, we've still really got to figure out what to do with the ghost of her dad. I mean, he can't just disappear. There's got to be a resolution. So I thought, well, the only way to fight um, a ghost is to have other ghosts fight on her behalf. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's interesting in that it's ghosts fighting ghosts, and she's the only one who can see it happening. So maybe it's not happening at all. Maybe the whole thing's in her head. And it's, it's kind of weirdly coincidental that it all happens at the same time that the psychiatrist is trying to talk her down. Mm-hmm. And it's like the spirits are exercised at the same time that he's talking to her. So is it actually because he's trying to convince her that the ghosts aren't real, or is it because the ghosts are actually fighting on her behalf? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. It's a, it's a well-done book. Now, when you get to the last panel of the third book, the word end is there. But I know you've got some other stuff going on. You're working with the folks from Ghost, which uh, the folks I have interviewed here on this podcast, and you guys are talking about doing a crossover situation. What's the latest on that? And are you putting the script together on that? Well, the way it's going to work is I put end when it's the end of the story arc, really. And I felt like the father's was two parts, then it stops. And then we've got another part and then another storyline, and then eventually when we get to issue seven and eight, I decided that it would be a good idea to introduce Ghost. Because I read the book, mm-hmm. because it looked quite similar to mine, I thought, I, I want to check this out and see if I'm actually stepping on someone else's territory here. Mm-hmm. But it was different, mm-hmm. and it was brilliant. I really, really liked it. So, of course, I just had to tell the guys I loved it, and then I started asking lots of probing questions mm-hmm. where... Is it modern day or is it... It looks a little bit futuristic, I think, because of the anime manga style art. But no, it's all modern day. And I think they just thought I was a weirdly obsessed fan. And then I pointed out, no, 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 I'm, I'm doing my own comic. And I'm just seeing if it's feasible for the two characters to meet. <laughs> so we both decided it would be a good idea. They are a bit slower because they have to... They have two of them writing the scripts and they have to send the scripts off to an artist and the artist is fantastic which is probably why it takes a bit more time to turn around one of their comics mm-hmm. so I decided I would do it first and then maybe they could borrow Hollow Girl for one of their books mm-hmm. and they like Hollow Girl they want her to be a part of their continuity because they've got lots of these sort of supernatural vigilante style characters mm-hmm. and they kind of want Hollow Girl to be a part of that Mm-hmm. I've held back a little bit because I like that, but at the same time, it kind of spoils my ambiguity. If she's defined in a supernatural universe, then that's it. The supernatural stuff is real. There's no ambiguity anymore. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to do one foot in, one foot out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be a good story. It's uh, a lot of action. It's about a bad guy goes from the hometown of Ghost, which I think is... Oh, I can't remember. Where is it set? It's quite far away, and it made me think, oh, well, where's Hollow Girl set then? Mm-hmm. So I had to kind of come up with where it's set. So I came up with a name of a fake town and said it was in Illinois, mm. just so that there was actually a, a, a place where it could be. Because really it was just sort of anywhere America, but then I realized I probably needed a bit of geography to it. Mm-hmm. Cool. So when this issue nine, going at your rate, do you have uh, any idea when that's going to hit? It'll be seven and eight, issue seven oh, and sorry, eight. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Any idea when you're going to have those available for people? Uh, I think it's about one every two months. I can put out an issue in a month, mm-hmm. but then I usually take a break and do a few short stories for other things. Mm-hmm. But issue four, I think I'm about two-thirds of the way through it, so that should be out probably around August. Mm. So I don't know. Uh, next year sometime okay so that'll be good so something to look forward to with that and uh, are you going to be able to give input on the ghost script when they hit the hollow girl part i'm going to definitely give it to them because i want them to check the dialogue i want them to make sure that ghost is acting in the way they would write him i don't I don't want anything to uh, seem completely out of place I don't I want to show that I understand the character and if I don't understand the character then they're going to educate me mm. and if they make a lot of changes I'll give them a co-writer credit as well mm. so then when when the opposite happens and they get to write Hollow Girl they're going to do the same with you they're going to give you the script and have you take a look at Hollow Girl yeah those poor guys <laughs> uh, when they did the pin up if you go on the official 
Insane Comics Facebook page, they did a great pin-up of Hollow Girl and Ghost having a face-off. And I was quite fussy about silly things like the placement of her hands in the picture. And I was always very adamant that Ghost should look quite relaxed and Hollow Girl should look quite stressed and intense. (laughs) I feel like Ghost, if you read the comic, he's such a professional. He's flying around with two knives, killing loads of bad guys and seemingly without effort. Whereas Hollow Girl is still a kid and she's been propelled by a supernatural force maybe so i just feel like she's the one who would be very tense and uncomfortable and he would be very confident Uh, i wanted to write a part in the script where she points a gun at him and he just disarms her with just a flick of his wrist Mm. it should be like that i mean i'm giving a lot of respect to their character Mm mm-hmm well, it's good also to have contrast between the characters, because if she's exactly like he is, it's going to be a little more than a superhero team-up. Yeah, I, I definitely didn't want it to be that, you know. There's a little bit of that. There will be that usual two characters after the same goal, but first of all, they fight. But I wanted to get past it very quickly with ghosts, to sort of making it clear, look, you mm-hmm. can't fight me. Mm-hmm. I'm very good at this. <laughs> but then... Um, I've got an idea for later on when they do their version that I've also specified, Hollow Girl's fighting style, in case they do get in hand-to-hand, which would be lots of biting and tugging at any sensitive area that might be exposed. Ouch. Yeah, Hollow Girl fights dirty. Oh, ouch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's in the works. Now, you said you're, what, two-thirds of the way through four, so it's likely to come up in August. Issue 3 has just come out, so if people want to go to the Insane Comics and get to the store on the InsaneComics.com website, you can get issues 1 through 3 there now, so there's, you've got a chance to, to catch up pretty easily with Hollow Girl. You said there's other stuff that you're doing. What projects are you working on that we should be aware of besides Hollow Girl? Well, I'm working with Lou Frontier at the moment. Mm-hmm. I read his Wicker comic. Mm-hmm. I really like that idea of it like it's almost like an american fairy tale and i thought it was really quite wonderful but it's really the early stuff where it's purely about the witch and these horrible looking monsters so when he was looking for people to do some short stories with the storytellers i volunteered to do a four-page short which was basically just a modernization of wicker so two hikers go walking in the woods and oh crap they've accidentally run into the witch and reawaken her Mm. but then it sort of led on to this idea well this could be bigger this could actually be a serial so we've decided to make it into a multi-part serial going over several issues Mm. about a new wicker witch comes about it's pretty cool so far the first issue i think is one of the scariest things i think i've drawn i I think uh, the blue frontiers original idea is so good that when you mix it with my more realistic drawing style, it looks very unpleasant. <laughs> well, as you said, you like people to have a reaction, so you can expect people will have a reaction too. I, it was one of the things you mentioned to me was after I read your books, I should watch cartoons to get back to a different state of uh, that. And I, I, I mentioned to you I'd watched Graveyard of the Flies, I think it was called, or Graveyard of the Fireflies, whatever it is, anime, very depressing, dark thing about two kids in the World War II who are trying to survive all the bombing and stuff like that. And I managed to get through that. So I liked your books, too. I think your books are great. Again, I like variety, and I like something that's different. And so your book, all three of the issues of Hollow Girl are very different and very enjoyable. So I think you're doing a great job there, Luke. I think it's wonderful. Oh, so it didn't depress you too much, then? Nope. No, I didn't get depressed. I'm able to read these things and dive in and take the story on and and, uh, kind of go... It leaves me more with questions and it leaves me more with concerns. So that's why I was glad to be able to talk with you, because I had a bunch of questions I wanted to to ask. Why do you do this and why do you do that? And that's usually when I read a comic, I come out with that. It doesn't usually depress me. It usually gives me, makes me curious. So I was happy. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad you like them. And a lot of the questions are answered in issue four, because I kind of think of the first four issues as an origin arc, really. They all show little flashbacks to her as a child. Mm -hmm. And the fourth one is purely her talking to a psychiatrist, and uh, you get all flashes of things like who trained her to shoot. Because that's something that always annoys me about these things, where a character 
wants to go out and get revenge and suddenly they're automatically brilliant at, at firing guns and I thought that's not fair I, I need to show how she learned to fight so you get her learning to shoot then you get the truth behind what happened with her and her father and you get her first hit and I came up with a cool way of connecting all of those things so it felt more like a coherent narrative so that pretty much ends the uh, origin story now so from issue five onwards it would be just her going on a series of very dark adventures. Cool. cool. Well, I'm going to be interested to see what you do, because this was a very dark adventure to start with. So I'm going to be fascinated to see what other things you have in mind, because one of the kinds of things you enjoy is going to be very dark and probably very very entertaining, and the kind of thing you can't put down when you start to read it. Oh, thank you very much. Dark villains, that's what you can expect. I don't think I've done very good villains yet, so the issues 5 to 10 are going to have very cool villains. Very good. Well, keep it up, Luke. You're doing wonderful stuff. And hopefully you could maybe get to talk with you guys again. Maybe when you, your crossovers are happening or when you get some new issues out early next year or something, it'd be great to talk with you again. I'd love that. Thank you very much. People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy, and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne. As a man, I'm flesh and blood. I can be ignored. I can be destroyed, but as a symbol... Get the latest from the comics universe. News, interviews, previews, and reviews. Listen to the weekly Wayne's Comics Podcast so you can keep reading your comics. Welcome to the podcast, Corey Levine, creator of Bowery Boys, a New York story, but who also has other good things going on. You were an editorial staffer at Marvel Comics, where you edited one of my very favorite things, the Soleil books from France. So that's great, Corey. And, of course, other things. You've got owner-operator of First Edition Publishing. You wrote for another one of my very favorite TV shows, Ben 10 Omniverse. So I can see why people say how good a writer you are. Well, thank you for that, and thanks for the introduction, and thanks for having me, Wayne. I'm pleased to be on the show and happy to talk, so let's get into it. Let me know what you got for me. Well, I have to read the thing on the cover of Bowery Boys. It's from Mark Miller or Millar, whatever, either way, probably right. If I'd realized Corey Levine was this good when he was my editor, I would have had him rewrite all my scripts. This comic is terrific. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to pay him anything for that, did you? I certainly did not. Okay, uh, that's good. <laughs> I had the pleasure of working with Mark for a brief period where I was editing his creator-owned books, Superior and Kick-Ass, and Mark doesn't take anything lightly or do anything small. So when I asked him for a cover quote, <laughs> he really went over the top with it like he does with everything, and that's, that's what people have come to love about Mark. So uh, he was very gen- he's always been very generous uh, and very kind to me, so grateful to have him uh, vouching for us. Cool. Of course, you got Mark Wade on your side, too which is pretty cool. I always like Mark Wade and his writing, too. So if he likes your writing, that's a pretty good thing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, he and Brian Wood and Mark Miller, all those guys were very kind to us and to our book and had no real reason to be. So it's been, (laughs) other than uh, hopefully the quality of the book, but nobody owed me any favors. I didn't have any lured photos of anybody. So uh, (laughs) it was all just acts of kindness from people who I have a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for. Very cool. Well, it's a really interesting story. Why don't you tell people what Bowery Boys is about? Sure, uh, I'd be happy to. So Bowery Boys is a coming-of-age story set in the mid-19th century in New York City. And what we do is we take all of the period history that makes New York so fascinating in that particular moment. It's sort of notoriously well-known for being the Gangs of New York era So you have these rival street gangs, violence breaking out across the city, political corruption running rampant through Tammany Hall. That's the height of the Irish immigration wave to the country. And you see that starting to fuel the very beginnings of the American labor reform movement. So you have all these competing interests and activities making New York a really volatile 
place at that time. So what we do is we use that as a backdrop for this coming-of-age adventure about a group of adolescents growing up on the streets, coming together, and facing the hardships of life in their time. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I saw you first at Wizard World, Philly. You had a booth kind of across from where I was helping out at the Stabity Bunny booth. And right. I, I was really intrigued by the whole setup of the book. As I was, I was mentioned to you before we started recording, I love period pieces, but I get so frustrated when period pieces are politically correct. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's no way in this world... Well, I won't get into I won't name names, but there, there are certain things that I've seen people act like they do today. And I'm always... I'm angered at that because that's not a good story, from my opinion. Yes, we've got to adapt things probably for some people to be able to enjoy them, but you really go out of your way to make sure that this is actually faithful to the time period, at least as, as I understand it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a well, well-researched, you know, heavily researched piece of work. And, you know, it is something that in the writing I was very mindful and conscious of is trying not to pull any punches and to represent and be honest and truthful about people's opinions and political leanings of the period. That's one of those things that initially, and I think creatively, people can get a little bit apprehensive about, especially if you're talking about contemporary issues, but under the veil of history, you have a little bit more leeway. And I think folks are a little bit more willing to forgive or see past the story and kind of understand the author's intent in a way, uh, sort of separate the artist from the art and hopefully are able to read those elements as being historically representative and not necessarily representative of my own personal opinions or uh, politics. Mm-hmm. I really liked the fact also that the artwork was very good. You, you know, you, you put the team together, apparently, and got all this. How did you bring the folks together? You have Ian Bertram as the artist and Brent David McKee. What was he doing for the book? So Ian Bertram is my co-creator on the project. He and I found each other and developed the idea together. And what happened was Ian, because of his extraordinary talent, at a certain point exited the project to go pursue opportunities with mm-hmm. publishers, you know, Marvel and DC and Image Comics. And and certainly when somebody calls you from DC and you're a young comic book artist and they ask you to draw Batman, you don't ever say no. Mm-hmm. Uh, So Ian and I had a very amicable understanding parting of the ways, and Brent McKee was available and swooped in and did a hell of a job finishing the book. And so I had the good fortune of having developed creative relationships with two young, talented guys, both Ian and Brent, have had and have forthcoming projects that will continue to raise their profiles in the industry. So happy to have them along for the ride. Because I didn't notice there was a change in the artists we went through. It's divided into five sections. Mm-hmm. Did Ian do some of them, and then Brent picked up the rest? How did that work? Yeah, so Ian and I did about 100 pages of work together, okay. which constituted the first three chapters of the book and some of the fourth okay. before circumstances conspired to have him leave. Mm-hmm. And while Brent's style certainly is different, we did maintain some of the visual motifs and stylings that Ian established early on. In addition, we were able to keep our color artist, Rodrigo Avilés. He stayed on throughout the whole book. So mm-hmm. we definitely made efforts to lend a degree of consistency and smooth that transition. And I think we pulled it off pretty successfully. I haven't heard any complaints from folks with respect to that transition. So I think it comes together pretty naturally. One of the things I really like, too, is that it's a hardcover. I love hardcovers. Did it come out in individual issues or did you release it as a hardcover? So it was just released as a hardcover edition. And, you know, you mentioned early off the Soleil line of comics that I edited for Marvel. And that was definitely um, an inspiration and influence creatively as we were conceiving this project, trying to sort of follow the model of the Franco-Belgian tradition of the band's dessinés and taking our cue from that. In an ideal world, we would have hoped to have published the work as a series of large, oversized format hardcovers, but the American market doesn't really support that type of product. So this is as close as we were able to get and working with a publisher like Dark Horse, who is very understanding about what the medium and the format mean and the presentation mean to the story. And I think in that way, they were able to put together a really successful package for us. 
See, on some levels, I think that's kind of the wave of the future. I'm not sure that everybody can get to a comic book store every week so they can get, or every month even, and get mm-hmm. individual issues. So I think that, and I, I noticed your booth, you were pretty busy a lot of the time selling the books, hopefully, and I was glad to get one of them. And I'm just kind of wondering, because I know that, I've heard people say that, like over in Europe, for example, they'll have stores which is nothing but hardcovers or trade paperbacks. Right. And here in America, we're a little less on that line, but I think we're leaning more and more that way. Do you think that's the way? Was that a, a, an influence on you doing a, a hardcover like this? Well, yes and no. I mean, truthfully, we had originally hoped to get picked up as a miniseries, mm-hmm. and it didn't end up working out for us in that way. So, But we kept producing the book anyways because we were passionate about it and we believed in it. Mm-hmm. And what we ended up doing was publishing it to the web at BoweryBoysComic.com. So it's up there to be read for free in the hopes of getting it out into the world, finding some people, and honestly with the hope of catching the eye of a publisher who would be able to do right by the story. And and fortunately, that gamble paid off for us. Now, with respect to the market in general, I think I'd be a little out of turn commenting. You know, I don't think you're wrong. I think... The idea that readers are leaning more toward the graphic novel, per se, or the collected edition is definitely apt. Uh, it's, it's clear, and it's been a result of the natural evolution of storytelling from one-and-done single issues to five, six-issue story arcs, where people want to read the whole thing. They want to read the whole story. What good is part three of six if you don't have one, two, four, five, and six? So it's a variety of factors. Fortunately, the sad reality, though, is if... Nobody buys the monthly comics. We'll have a lot fewer collected editions for people to read as well. So it's a little bit of a chicken and egg conundrum, and I'm not really the person to solve it, <laughs> to be honest. Well, I've asked a lot of people, and nobody seems to be exactly sure what comics is going to be when they grow up. But it's right. just an interesting thing. So let's talk about the story itself. Where did the, yeah. the idea for Bowery Boys come from? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to answer that. So the idea for the story, you know, the inspiration came from a variety of places. Around the time that I had first been introduced to Ian Bertram's artwork, I'd also read a story, just sort of happened across a story about the New York City sanitation system in this period in the 1850s, or lack thereof. And, you know, it was a scenario where in that time period, people would typically just throw their waste and refuse outside the window, the old chamber pockets spilled outside on the street. Alongside that, I was also experiencing my own frustrations with city life, living in New York at the time. And so when Ian and I came together and decided to work together and were looking for the story, these things came together in my head. And the idea of writing about New York while living in New York was a place where he and I found a lot of creative common ground. So it was very fertile for both of us, I think. And that was the genesis of the idea. And then a lot of the rest of it came from the research, spun out of learning about the history and the people and the places and all of the social context of that period. Were you all interested in that time period before you started to do it? Was that something you had explored before? Or how did you land this specific time period? I hadn't explored it in depth. It wasn't something that I had a pre-existing interest in. And I landed on the time period, like I said, kind of came out, spun out of that one little story I read. And then as I started to do more research and uh, get a better grasp and understanding of what life was like at that time, it all came together. A lot of these disparate story elements fell into place Mm -hmm. for me. And one of the very incorrect things that people do is they call each other by their nationality. Mm. You know, some people get called Irish, and some people get called Jews and things like that, which, of course, today would be unheard of. You know, you wouldn't dare do sure. something like that. But in a way, that was a good thing because we get to understand a little bit about the roughness of what they were experiencing. It was on many levels a derogatory way to refer yeah. to each other. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in many ways, I think it's reflective. It's part of the reason why it's sort of frowned upon now, but that doesn't exclude it from happening. But yeah, certainly things were a lot more out in the open 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, some of the characters are really like, I got a kick out of Roderick, who mm-hmm. is, is a, a upper crust, we would probably consider him a 1% today yep. type guy. And he is like it was back in that era. <laughs> there were cultures that thought if you were grossly obese, that was immensely appealing. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen things, you know, there was a Monty Python thing where there was this very gorgeous woman and this guy wanted this really heavy woman 
instead because that's what was considered fun back in those days. But he's that way. And what's interesting is other people around him aren't necessarily that way. You've got Marcus, who is one of the more flamboyant characters, who's the guy who's supposed to make things happen for Roderick. And he's it's a really interesting choice of people. I always got a kick that Marcus dresses rather flamboyantly. Yes. Lots of color and stuff to it, where most of the other people don't seem to do that. And it, it makes him stand out as a person. Was there people back in this time period in your research you came across that inspired these different characters? Yeah, absolutely. The nice thing about a piece like this is that I can pick and choose from history and, and the fact that the idea was really to take the setting and make that as realistic as possible and create an entry point for the reader. And once that's accomplished, then I think we can take some license and spin out these larger-than-life characters, many of whom are based on historical figures and legends and fictional characters and you know some kind of mishmash or soup of all of those things. And a lot of what's in the story is based in history with varying degrees of thin or thick veils of fiction applied over it to piece together and, and service the story that we are trying to tell. And Ian did a really spectacular job with the character designs, as you alluded to, in making these characters visually representative of their moral and ethical fabric. And I think that that really shines through and, and sings in the story. Mm-hmm. And of course, you've got, uh, it looks like a brother and sister. Yeah, it's Daniel and Daisy are oh, uh, yeah. very different characters from almost everybody else in the book. She's small, and he's rather large. He's not the sharpest tool in the shed, but he's, <laughs> right. he makes up for that by being this massively powerful person. And it's just really interesting to me. The great thing about this story is there's a lot of variety, and even like the McGovern family, which is mm-hmm. a lot of the things focus around. The father is active in the unions, and the son because they're not really in the upper crust or they don't really respect the upper crust as much as other people might, bad things start to happen to them. Yeah. And one of the things about the writing of this book, I have to say, I would love the surprises along the way. The beginning of chapter five, and I would never dare say what it is, but something (laughs) happens that in my mind would never happen in this kind of book. So I was shocked. I was genuinely very surprised. And the whole chapter five is a pivot on some levels as far as the story goes. But that's the great thing about the characters you've set up. They are able to move within the story, and it still makes sense. That was the great thing about it. I really loved it. One guy's in jail, and he comes out, and he ends up being like a leader for some of these people. And so people move in the story, which I thought, you know, character growth is a wonderful thing, and not many comics get that happening very often. So for me, I loved the way that you did that, that you moved things in certain ways, and things were very surprising in the way that you did that. It was really well done. I just wanted to say that as I read it, I was just shocked. There's several, not only the one in Chapter 5, but several other things take place that really surprised me. So I, I just thought that was really great writing. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the compliment, and I'm glad you picked up on some of the stuff that we were laying down. I mean, you know, with respect to the characters, you definitely wanted them to feel though they had full lives outside of our stories, and choosing that moment in which to enter their lives is a critical story choice. By its nature, you know, being a work of history and also being grounded in research, we were able to present characters that were representative of the life experience of the type of people living in that place in that period mm-hmm. and were able to allude to their lives outside of our particular narrative. And as far as the twists and turns and the surprises of the story and what we do with some of the characters, I think that really speaks more than anything to the benefit of creator-owned comics, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. We have the freedom to tell stories and to do things in a way that simply just isn't done in mainstream comics for a variety of reasons and some perfectly legitimate, but it's the same idea behind independent film as opposed to the Hollywood studio system. I mean, there are limitations on large businesses that produce creative work that are inherent hindrances to the creativity of that work. But when you operate without a safety net and you operate with complete creative freedom 
as we did, mm-hmm. uh, you're able to tell unique stories because you're not operating under the same framework. And so I would just encourage people that if they read Bowery Boys like you did or if they read any independent comics and they pick up on that, the idea that oh, there's things happening here that I would never see in a Batman comic or a Spider-Man comic or you know what have you, or even a Transformers comic or a Predator comic. I mean, when you put something new into the world, it's not just the intellectual property. It's not just the characters. It's everything that you have freedom to do and to create without limitation. And so I think that's what it speaks to. Well, I really liked it a lot. It was something that was, it just jumped out at me. I literally read it in one sitting because I couldn't put it down. I had to find out what was going to happen next. So mm-hmm. it's one of those great books. I love it when a book does that to me. If I can't put a marker in there, I can come back. I prefer to do that. And that's why I like longer stories like the one that you're telling it really is engrossing and gosh i wish more books were like that well thank you i'm grateful for that feedback now talk to me about the title i'm kind of interested bowery boys i'm not entirely certain and maybe this is for a reason is that the bowery boys aren't necessarily the group that comes together around the young mcgovern it kind of feels like everybody's a bowery boy on some level to me well well, yeah exactly it's a bit of a double entendre in that the bowery boys were one of these street gangs, these 19th century street gangs. They've been well-documented and written about, and they are featured in the story as the group led by the character Marcus Welsh. However, the title and the protagonist, these sort of adolescents who come together in our story also are boys of the Bowery. They are the youth of New York, the uh, youth of the city at that time. So it is meant to be more universally applied than specifically to just the gang. I've also heard from a lot of people, they see the name and they think of there is a comedy troupe that made films in the 1930s that were called the Bowery Boys with actors like Leo Gorsi and Hunts Hall. And just to clarify, this story has absolutely no relation to the Bowery Boys of those old films. This is Mm -hmm. the Bowery Boys of history. Mm -hmm. Again, I want to point out when you get to the fifth section, it's, mm-hmm. it's a huge change. Several characters move in different directions, yep. which, which was terrific. I mean, I you know when you usually get to the end, everybody wraps up where they are and stays where they are. But to see something that really made a lot of changes to it was quite a, a nice bit of reading for me. I, I was very surprised by that. So I hope other people will pick up on that idea that you don't necessarily have to keep characters identical through the whole book. Right. Yeah. It wasn't our intention ever to really wrap it up and tie it off with a neat little bow. And I think part of our effort to represent truth through our fiction is the notion that you don't know what's coming. And maybe just because you're expecting something based on a history of story structure Mm -hmm. or genre tradition, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to follow those rules. So we definitely try to represent that in the storytelling. I also like where the big payoffs that happens as you Mm -hmm. go through the book. You write that it ends in such a way that you could have more stories out of it, but yet the story really wraps up on many levels in satisfying ways. Oh, good. Which I liked. I was really by the end of it, and I, I, I don't want to spoil the end either. It, things that happen at the end are quite dramatic and also on some levels funny. That's the yeah. interesting thing about it. <laughs> so being able to translate something like a historical piece like this and get it to a place where we from today enjoy it and really get into it and, dare I say it too, we probably learn a lot about the time period. I know that'll scare some people away when, when you know when you actually <laughs> learn something, but for me, I like that. I love a book when I can sit down and learn something. Oh, this means this, and this is why they did this. I love those kinds of things in a book. I remember the old Justice League when Gardner Fox used to teach us science mm. and stuff, and I used to always love that. I, you know, and somebody would, the teacher would say, well, why is this, that, and the other? Well, see, in the Justice League number four, they did this and the other, and that meant this science aspect. And a teacher would look like, are you crazy? <laughs> but I learned science from it, and I learned a lot about the time period and the people, what was going on with the Bowery Boys. Now, I'm also interested, too, that you've got to subtitle Our Fathers, and, of course, the McGovern father has to do with it. And it's an interesting thing to talk about how important the relationship between fathers and sons are in this book. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Was that important for you to communicate through the story? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it is a central theme to the story, and there are numerous different father figures and dynamics of father-son power 
that exists within the book. And it also alludes to historically, you know, we have all these kinds of events to look back on as in the formation of our lives individually and our lives as a society. And sort of the idea that we all have to, as individuals and as a whole, reckon with the actions and the decisions and the philosophies and the politics of our predecessors, fathers or otherwise. So it definitely alludes to that. I think, you know, the title also alludes to the Our Father who art in heaven, I'll be the name, so forth. So the title is meant to evoke, you know, a variety of different elements that are reflected in the telling and the story. So that's kind of where that comes from and what that's meant to be. And interestingly enough, even though a lot of the characters are male, you've got a lot of variety in the female characters, too, which I really liked. You've got some of the standard ladies of the night kind of thing, and some mm-hmm. of them are stronger than others. But then you've got girls and other things happening around it. And you know, I always felt that back in these past eras, we like to think, that, or some people like to think, that women were rather stereotyped. Or, or mm-hmm. within one role. And when I read your book and saw all the different roles that the women and the females and the girls all played within it, I really liked that because I think that you communicated something that's important for people to know, that women haven't always been subjugated. Sure. They have found ways to shine and to excel. And in your book, we see that on several different levels, too, which I, I really liked. That was one of the things I really appreciated when I read the book. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. It was an interesting challenge in this book to try to create a diverse cast and make it accessible for all audiences when representing a time period that the politics and social life were dominated by men and women's role was very different in that time period. So to try to create a honest and realistic portrayal of life in a time period when the social mores are not really reflective of what we tend to think contemporarily mm-hmm. without alienating, hopefully, a portion of potential readers. So that was a bit of a um, tricky thing to figure out. And hopefully, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it sounds like you found that to be successful. And uh, I hope other folks do as well. Well, I really enjoyed it. There were a lot of aspects to it that, as I got in, I could see it on some levels it's like juggling plates on the top of a stick. One starts to wobble, and you've got to run over and spin it a little more. Yeah. And there were lots of plates going on different sticks, and, and at the right times you'd go over and make things happen in different places, which I liked. So I love an involved story. I like one that makes me pay attention, and I felt that uh, Barley Boys did that really excellently, so I liked that. Thank you. Yeah, we definitely were working with a large cast and really broad thematic content, a wide ranging plot. And so it was very much a plate spinning exercise, as you say. And it was an interesting challenge as a writer to try to pull this off and find that thread throughout all of it that would connect with the reader. And hopefully uh, people find that. Now, at the very end, in the very last panel, it says the end. But Mm -hmm. you do leave things open where you could do more Bowery Boys. Are there other Bowery Boys stories you want to tell? There are, and yeah, you're right. We definitely leave some of the pieces on the table rather than clearing it off completely. So that in the event that we have the opportunity to tell more stories with these characters, I would jump at the chance to do it. Mm -hmm. But that being said, we did want to make clear that this is one self-contained story that concludes beginning, middle, and end. And again, that's one of the areas in which we distinguish ourselves from ongoing serialized comics in that this is a story that has a finite finish line so but if we have the opportunity to tell more stories i would love to do it i definitely have uh, several in mind different areas of american history in that period and beyond that i think would be ripe for exploration and similar to antebellum new york would make uh, a compelling and dynamic backdrop for human drama and I love the research. I love getting in there and learning and f- about American history and finding ways to apply that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so short story long. Yeah, I would love to tell more Barry Boy stories. We'll hopefully have the opportunity, but nothing that I can confirm for you today. All right. Well, I hope you get to because I really enjoyed the book, and I think others will too, uh, particularly those, who like, those of us who love variety in our reading. I think this is something that is uh, – it goes places I haven't been in my comics reading before. So I, I really love that. I thought that was a great thing. 
that's great to hear. That's the goal, man. Taking people where they haven't been before. Now, as far as other things that you've got going, as I was saying, you've got a lot of things going on. You teach graphic design. You know, you do all kinds of things, uh, written for TV, uh, owner of a a thing called First Edition Publishing. What things are going on with you that we should be aware of? Sure. Well, I haven't written for TV, just to correct that little point. I wrote the Ben 10 Omniverse comics, but not for the... Oh, okay. I thought it was the TV show. Okay. No, but I just don't want to misrepresent myself. (laughs) Experiences all, but currently I teach. Uh, I'm uh, very privileged to be a member of the faculty at the New Hampshire Institute of Art, which is a small art college in Manchester, New Hampshire. A great school. And to your point, I teach in the graphic design department. Coming this fall, I'll be actually teaching in creative writing. I'll be teaching writing the graphic novel. So that'll be a pleasure. I've got a good mix of students, visual artists, as well as creative writers that I'm excited about getting into it with and i'll be teaching in the foundations department there so working with uh, first year students so a good variety there and still really enjoying teaching it's a relatively new discipline for me i started working there last fall and otherwise i'm out at conventions i'll be at boston comic-con this year Mm. tabling and i'll be at new york comic-con this year most likely not behind a table but on the other side but uh, feel free to look out for me there Mm -hmm couple other smaller shows that I'm on the wait list for, so we'll see. But you can keep up to date on appearances at BoweryBoysComic.com or my Twitter handle. It's just Corey Levine, C-O-R-Y-L-E-V-I-N-E. And let's see, what else can I tell you? Uh, otherwise, i got a couple of writing opportunities on the horizon and a little early to publicize them at this point. But mm-hmm. just eager to keep things rolling and take the momentum from Bowery Boys, get it into people's hands and move that forward into new writing and publishing opportunity. Mm, be great. Now, I want to point out also that it's available on Comixology digitally. Yes, yes, it is. Is it Amazon digitally or is it paper on Amazon only? No, it's available Kindle and on Comixology. Because I think there's a lot of people now who are starting to lean towards the digital books. And I, like that, I also like to get bigger books on digital as well to read so if you want something that's going to engage you and it's going to teach you something and it's going to be a story that you're going to enjoy reading something that you haven't read probably before then i would say get bowery boys and i hope you keep up the good work Corey, because that was a great book i really loved it it was fun to read and i couldn't put it down well thank you wayne and uh, thanks for having me on it's been a real pleasure talking comics with you and uh, appreciate the opportunity That's it for this week. Please be back next time when I'll be speaking with another great comics creator. But until then, keep reading your comics. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.